0: You're listening to the Arctic Circle podcast. In this episode, we listen to a discussion on Asian Nordic collaboration in the Arctic. The speakers are Aileen Aeseron Espiritu, researcher and network leader at the Arctic University of Norway, Jakob Isboselsen, head of the Greenlandic representation in Beijing, Kristin Inkastutir, assistant professor at the University of Iceland, Mark Latinje, Associate Professor at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, and Ranjeni Lindgren, Senior Research Fellow at NUPI, the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, and Associate Research Fellow at UI, the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. The discussions are moderated by Juha Soinavara, Associate Professor at the Arctic Research Center, Hokkaido University, Japan. This event originally took place at the 2023 Arctic Circle Japan Forum and was organized by the University of Iceland.
1: Okay, dear participants, dear participants, my name is Juha Saunavar. I come from Hokkaido University Arctic Research Center and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to this session, Asian collaboration with the Nordic Arctic. Okay, now it's Beve most likely. It's an early morning, but I hope uh, we are all here. Uh, and if somebody comes later, that's okay as well. This session is organized uh, by the University of Iceland in collaboration with the U-Arctic Thematic Network, uh, Arctic in Asia, Asia in the Arctic. I will be the moderator today, but obviously the driving force and convener behind the session is, is uh, Kristen And the purpose of, uh, of our panel is to discuss how... The growing Arctic interest, uh, the growing Asian interest in the Arctic, uh, has uh, been perceived and received in the Arctic region, and what kind of collaboration takes place. The panel uh, will present several projects and dialogues between Asian states and their, let's say, much uh, smaller counterparts in the Nordic, Nordic Arctic. We have an excellent group of people here today. I won't spend time introducing all of them. They will introduce themselves uh, then giving the speech about the practicalities. Five speakers, one hour. So let's say six minutes or so per per speaker. And then we will have panel discussion at the end. A small change in the order. So the first speaker will be Jakob Isposetsen. So Jakob, please, the floor
2: is yours. Thank you and welcome to all of you. It's really nice to be here in Tokyo and be a part of this panel. My name is Jakob and I'm the head of the Greenland representation in Beijing in China and before I was the head of the Greenland representation in Iceland and uh, for many years I have been working for the Greenlandic uh, Ministry for Foreign Affairs in uh, Nuuk and I'm also born and raised in in Nuuk and I'm very happy to contribute and give you uh, insight on how Greenland is working together with uh, uh, the Asian states here. So just uh, to show you here, our Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, Industry and Trade, uh, Vivian Motzfeld, uh, is our Minister in the Government of Greenland. Um, we have uh, five diplomatic missions uh, around in the world. We have in Copenhagen, we have in Washington DC, we have in Reykjavik, we have in Brussels and uh, our newest representation, uh, Beijing, that we opened uh, uh, in 2021. I would also say that we, uh, in Nuuk, we have uh, uh, the uh, US consulate uh, and uh, the Icelandic consulate. And uh, actually, the first Icelandic consul, uh, Mr. Petur Askisson, uh, is here. So, if you want to hear more about how diplomats operate in Nuk, you're always welcome to uh, to engage with uh, with Petur. Uh, And the recent uh, mission that opened in NUK is the uh, European Union, who uh, just opened their office uh, last month uh, in NUK. So far, no Asian states, neither China, Japan or Korea, has opened a a diplomatic mission in NUK. But uh, we'll see maybe in the future that will be the case. So what do we do in Beijing? Um, As you can see here... um, Basically, we want to develop our political and economic ties with uh, China, but also with uh, Japan and Korea. And um, we have had for many, many years uh, a large uh, seafood export to uh, to Asia, uh, first and foremost Japan for for many years. But uh, but now I think China is the single biggest market for the Greenlandic seafood export. So we are focusing a lot on that, and we want to expand uh, our uh, cooperation with uh, with China and Asia on 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 these things. We have had some difficult uh, uh, challenges in the beginning, uh, as you know, that the uh, the china has had a quite strict lockdown uh, due to covid-19 so uh, other areas like tourism culture and so on we have had we haven't had the opportunity yet to to uh, to engage so much with it but uh, now china is open so we hope that we will uh, be more active in in these areas uh, as well and in general we will uh, just promote greenland for uh, investors uh, and uh, for our culture and in general everything in relation to to the arctic corporation um working together with uh, with uh, asia is not a new thing for us uh, as you can see here basically uh, 10 consecutive years we have had large and high level trade delegations going to uh, to asia to japan to korea to uh, to china uh with uh, different themes like uh, tourism raw materials seal skins uh, infrastructure seafood uh, seal skins and so forth uh, with uh, with high level uh, 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 minister delegation um both the uh, prime minister and foreign minister and other uh, resort areas so we have actually been engaging with with asia for for many years so every time you talk about Greenland or China or Japan or, or South Korea, it's actually not something new. It is something we have done uh, for many years, and actually also in relation to to Japan. Um, I think the last forty years, uh, as you know, uh, Japan has a very high. Uh, level or degree of uh, of selecting the seafood products so we have actually have had japanese uh, observers uh, on our fishing vessels uh, for the last 40 years so uh, we are quite familiar with uh, with uh, with asia in that sense as you see we also get high level diplomatic delegations to greenland whether it's the fishery commissioner from the european union the president from the european uh, council or from the european commission uh, the UN General Secretary, uh, trying to, to do dog sledging in Umen or the President for South Korea, uh, or the, the US State Secretary. And, uh, it's very important for us that we, uh, that we can facilitate and host, uh, high level meetings also in Greenland because, uh, it's, it is not just about uh, having a, a, a nice trip, uh, to Greenland, but it's actually to coming. Uh, to see uh, the climate change happening, unfolding for their eyes. They can speak with us, they can speak with local people, the local communities and how they uh, uh, are experiencing the the climate change. So it's very important for us that they come and and see and feel the the different uh, challenges, uh, opportunities and and cooperations so it's not just like here where we go abroad and and and, and talk with people and meet with people and, and try to explain what is greenland what is Greenland about and so on so it goes uh, both ways and uh, in that sense um and as i mentioned also here royal greenland has actually also had uh, their sales office here in, in in tokyo in japan since uh 1988 uh, and i think in china since 2003. Uh, and uh, as you can see, uh, Takeshi Shimoda uh, was uh, given the Nelson Nat in silver, uh, uh, the, the honorary medal from the Greenland government uh, for his work for over 30 years. So so we have many ties with uh, with Asia. And also we would like to promote uh, tourism. We want to have more tourists from, from Japan, from Korea and, and China to Greenland. And we actually have three UNESCO uh, World Heritage sites in Ilulissat, Kuyada and Asivisuit Nibisa. So um, hopefully you can come up and see some uh, amazing uh, uh, Colvin uh, icebergs in the Ilyisset ice shore and, and, and also experience uh, climate change yourself. Or, or you can see the uh, old Icelandic and Norse heritage in, in the South Greenland uh, or uh, uh, go on uh, historical hunting, uh, uh, archaeological uh, experience in, in, in mid-Greenland. And pictures of some of them. Uh, we also uh, I want to touch upon uh, infrastructure. As you can see here, uh, the national company Royal Arctic Line did a, a, a joint uh, venture with uh, the Icelandic Imskip, so we are better connected to the world and actually also to showcase that. You see three big container ships. Uh, they were actually built and, and and bought in 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 China. Um So we are also dealing with the, the different Asian states in, uh, in 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 a bigger scale, uh, you can say. And also, I can recommend uh, that either if we are talking about flying or uh, about sailing, you can see that they are operating in very very hard conditions. So if you need some uh, special expertise uh, from the Arctic or operating in the Arctic environment, uh, Greenland is the place to go. Whether we are talking about shipping or flying or research and so forth. Just to give you an idea, also we extended the two runways in set and Nuk to 2,200 meters. So hopefully we will be better connected to the rest of the world. By next year, uh, they should be finished, and we are building a completely new airport in in in, uh, in the South Greenland in in Qaqortoq before that you had to fly either from Denmark or from Iceland and typically to Gangas Lusog, which is our old uh, military base like in the Keflavik which was uh, uh, given over by the American military uh, uh, in the big in, in the end of the 90s so the problem is that you had to go to a place where basically nobody lives there's just an airport and then you have to fly with a smaller plane a fixed wind plane uh, to either Ilulisset or, or Nuuk so hopefully it will be faster and a bit cheaper uh, and that is what is is important for businesses and tourism to to be able to do that so we will look very much forward to to this so uh yeah climate change um it is a challenge uh it is a big challenge for us for everyone but it also uh, gives some uh, opportunities for 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 us in greenland whether we are talking about agricultural production that can be increased in, in, in South Greenland or uh, fish stocks are um, migrating differently than, than, than we are used to, uh, mining opportunities with the ice is retrieving more and more uh, to have more accessible land to uh, do uh, exp- uh, exploration uh, or possible new sea routes. And this is just to give you an overview over the most advanced projects of the mining uh, sector that we have. Um, we have three active mines at the moment in, in Greenland, uh, and uh, many more uh, are in uh, in project uh, to uh, to be developed uh, further. And this could also be interesting for uh, Japan or Korea or China, I guess. And also uh, to showcase, uh, from the government of Greenland that, uh, we are doing a lot of effort and investments in hydropower, uh, and we have a lot of hydropower potentials. So, uh, I encourage you to, to go into, to this webpage and also see the official government tender who was out for uh, seeking investors, uh, around the world to, uh, participate, uh, in, uh, in these developments, um, and this is also an opportunity from the government of Greenland to contribute to to climate change, to to create uh, a more sustainable and greener uh, energy sector uh, as well. At the moment, seventy percent of our electricity in Greenland is deriving from hydropower, and with a new plant uh, hydropower projects, uh, we will hopefully get above uh, ninety uh, uh, percent uh, uh, within a few years. And I guess. That was it. Hopefully within time.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, we promised a few extra minutes for Jago, but I will be more strict with the following speakers. <laughs> so next, a great pleasure to invite Eileen from UIT. So Eileen, the floor screen is yours. Yeah, it
3: took my six minutes, so I'll try to speak in less than that. Just kidding. Um, I must apologize I have a really bad cold Oh, sir. thank you I'm short um, so I'm gonna be snuffling through my presentation. I just would like to thank Kristen for putting us all together getting getting us uh, into a panel um and also apologize again uh, that I don't um I'm not touching so much on Asia but I'm touching a lot on Russia and pos and, and uh, its possibilities um now that it's outside of the frame of the Arctic Circle Arctic Council. Uh, let' me just go forward, <clears throat> so what is Kalfa i'm just, this, is, this is the pathway that I'm going today I'll try not to speak so uh, quickly um but um uh keeping in time, I will uh not uh linger um. So it came into force on 25th of June 2021 um but before that there were a great deal of meetings It began in in Ottawa in um uh, 2010 with just the Arctic 5 states uh the coastal states outside but but not Iceland for some reason and so Iceland was uh, very uh angry at this and so were the Inuits of, of northern Canada which sort of shows you the evolution uh, now of um of Kaufa. um in that of course Iceland is part of um part of now the Arctic, well, plus five. Uh, um, and uh, the Inuit certainly have a say in what, what goes on in terms of, of how Kaua runs. Um, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> I apologize. Um, so the Arctic Five were uh, Canada, the Kingdom, Denmark, um, uh, with respect to the Faroe Islands and Greenland, Norway, um, the Russian Federation and the United States, and the plus five, this is why it's often called the five, the five plus five, Plus five, as a Republic of China, Japan, Republic of Korea, the European Union, even though um, it's not even an observer in the in the Arctic Council, and the Republic of Iceland, um, with the inclusion of these, um, they are, are active members in in the um, the provisional scientific uh, coordination group. And I am speaking too loud. So why is KALFA necessary? Uh, I think. Uh, <laughs> Jakob went through some of these in terms of, of, what's going on in, in Greenland, ice melting, um, uh, fisheries migrating. And I think fisheries migrating is probably one of the, the key areas in which, uh, Kalfa speaks to. Because, uh, apparently, science, scientific evidence suggests that there's actually not very much fish under the ice at the moment. But the, the, uh, the um, projection is that by 2030, by 2050, there will be so much ice melt and so much global warming of the seas that, that fish will migrate towards the Arctic. And you already see this, I've already seen this personally, you know, fishing off the, the, the Arctic coast of northern Norway is possible to actually catch mackerel. Um, which is, uh, you know, a fish that sort of roams around the the, the Iberian Peninsula. So um, the the tra- the trajectory of these fisheries will eventually um, be in the Arctic, uh, the the Central Arctic Ocean. Scientists suggest, and this is why it's necessary to have a Central Arctic Ocean uh, fisheries agreement that uh, that will protect these these fisheries from overfishing uh, by countries such as China and Japan and um, South, the Republic of Korea, and of course, also the, uh, the Arctic states, Norway, or uh, the Russian Federation, the United States, and Canada. <clears throat> but certainly, there's been a great interest, uh, from China because they are the, the, they're the ones that could consume the most fish in the world. So, um, so bringing them into the fold of KAUFA was, was, I think, for the first, the Arctic Five, the initial Arctic Five was, was necessary. They found this, this necessary by the time that they were, uh, um, hammering out the agreement uh, in twenty seventeen. But now that Russia is out of the Arctic Council, what does this mean? Um, the last year has been a uh, a debate uh, probably within the the Russian government and and with itself uh, as to whether they should should be attending these meetings or not. Indeed, they didn't attend, even though they they were invited to meetings in March. Of 2022 of course you know the war had just happened it's a week after the war in, in the f- uh, first days of March that they were invited to a virtual meeting and they did not attend. Um, they were also invited to a, the september meeting and uh they, the, they were they did not um yeah that, uh, the reasoning for not attending was that they were apparently were not sent the documents early enough for them to attend to to uh, meaningfully uh, uh contribute to these meetings. But the most important uh, change, I think, in in uh, Russia today is its Arctic policy. And some of you who read Russian and uh, there's there's a really uh, excellent reporter at uh, High North News, which is based in Buda, in northern Norway, and he's con- gone through um, and compared the texts of um, of the Arctic policy of policies of Russia. And you can see it. Uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, I don't think you can see the website site there. But he's it's actually, it's, it's essentially dropped. Uh, Arctic in its cooperation in the high north and in the Arctic. It's also dropped the Barents-U-Arctic cooperation, a cooperation that has gone on since 1993. And those of you who have ever been to uh, Surwaringer or Finnmark, um, how many of you have been to East Finnmark? Mm, one, two people. Oh, come on. Oh, three, four. Okay. Um It's incredibly sad at the moment. They, they, we, we've just had the Kirkenes conference, and we're still trying... Even that part of Norway, which has had 30 years of really, really tight uh, relations with Russia, is trying to find its footing on how to engage or not engage with Russia. There are still uh, Russian ships coming in, as I'll show you in a moment. But I think this is the most important document at the moment. And it it just came out uh, at the end of February. And so uh, does this mean that Russia will go more towards its allies or its uh, uh, perceived allies? Um, of course, yeah, China is sort of on the uh, teeter-tottering, and I think Mark Lantain will talk to you about this uh, in a moment, teeter-tottering on, on its relations with Russia. But it, it, it the fact that it has erased the Arctic, the high north, embarrassed Euro-Arctic cooperation from its Arctic policy, I think is significant. And we'll see how this plays out over the next years. Uh, hopefully the war doesn't last that long. Um, but um, but it, it's, it's incredibly significant, and it's... it's Sorry? Oh, okay, sorry. Okay. Um, so what is the future? I, th- I think, um, um, uh, we, these are the things that we should be thinking about. Some more questions than answers. Um, should, should Russia continue to f- participate in KALFA? Should be, they be allowed to participate in KALFA? Um, and what about indigenous, Arctic indigenous peoples in Russia? And are we, are we, um, uh, sort of, uh superseding the values of sustainability and and uh and protecting the arctic the arctic uh central arctic ocean uh in for, at the expense of human rights of uh, of um uh, uh, this war of aggression in in uh between Russia and Ukraine there have been some Norwegian examples uh for those of you who live in Norway um this is uh, this is obvious that uh the the fisheries agreement between Russia and Norway has but has just been resigned in October in 20, 20, October 2022 in in the height of uh uh the war with the Ukraine uh Russians, Russia's war with the Ukraine and three ports still remain open in northern Norway for Russian fishers to come in and bring in their catch i'm i'm, I'm getting to the end um and but the Norway takes over the Arctic Council on May 11th 20, of this year and there's <coughs> There's been no sign this is not going to happen on the Norwegian side. But there's still a lot of doubt as to whether Russia will give it over and give it over peacefully. Because they're, they're going to say, well, according to the documents, all of us have to be present for this takeover. But in the, the tweets by the SAO of the Arctic Council for Norway and also the foreign minister of, of um, Norway, everything is um, a go that, that they, were, they will uh, take over the Arctic Council leadership. So this is where I've uh, taken you today, and uh, I hope there'll be questions later. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. And next,
1: a great pleasure to invite uh, Christine Ingvastotter to give her presentation.
4: Good morning, everyone. My name is Kristín Ingvastóttir, Assistant Professor at the University of Iceland. I do research on uh, Japan's relations with Iceland and also the rest of the Nordics. So the the theme here today at at this session is very close to what I engage with uh, on a daily basis. So I want to start with talking a bit about the new uh, Arctic policy that Iceland released in uh, 2021. And I just want to emphasize that, uh, as I stated in the introduction to the policy, that Arctic affairs are a top priority in Iceland's foreign policy. And in the, uh, in the policy, there are at least three points that specifically deal with the importance of international collaboration in various contexts. But in my brief talk today, I'm going to talk about the sort of the uh, Arctic diplomacy as we experience it in Iceland. And I'm going to focus on the three Asian countries that have embassies in Reykjavik. And these are uh, from left. <laughs> if, you, if we think about this from the pictures, we have the Japanese embassy, the Chinese embassy and the Indian one. And I want to mention that during the Cold War years, or kind of historically in Iceland, uh, the United States and Russia have had the biggest embassies in in Iceland. And here I'm talking about staff. Um, but in recent years, the places have been quite, kind of uh, turned around, and currently in Iceland, the largest embassies um, are held by the, the Asian states. So we have, uh, and here again I'm talking about staff, uh, the Chinese embassy has 10 employees, uh, the Indian one has 7, the same as, uh, as Russia and the United States currently, and Japan then follows with 6. Um, also if we look at the history of the embassies, the Chinese is actually the oldest one, it, last year it had been there for 50 years. So it has a very long history in in Reykjavik and has been very visible. If we then kind of return to and focus on uh, an Arctic agenda, then also China is most prominent. Um, in 2012, China and Iceland, they signed a framework agreement on Arctic cooperation. Um, and this is something, this was the first agreement of this kind that China... Uh, signed with any Arctic state, so this is something that has been highlighted in academic literature, and is also highlighted in the uh, in China's Arctic policy document from 2018. And in the years 2012 to 13, a lot of high-level bilateral agreements were signed between Iceland and China. Also, in two, among these, in two th- 2013, there was agreement signed on China Iceland Aurora Observatory. And this has now materialized in a 700 square meter research station that has recently opened um, in Northern Iceland. And when I say opened, the, the building has been inaugurated, but due to COVID, the planned activities have not really taken off in in the way that they will. Um, when it comes to Japan, the, the high level diplomacy did not start until around 2015. But it has progressed rapidly since. Um, we have, for instance, in um, in 2021, very high level collaboration of Iceland and Japan co-hosted the third Arctic Science Ministerial, or ASM three, as it's often called. And as a result of that, at a ministerial level, uh, there was an MOC signed, which which specifically recognizes Arctic science and marine research um, as particular areas of common interest. And I also want to mention, for those interested, that tomorrow afternoon there will be a specific section here at the forum on Icelandic-Japanese research collaboration. So um, I hope I will see many of you there. Um, Finally, this is kind of a large, medium, small kind of uh, process, but when we move to India, um there is much potential but maybe not much collaboration has taken place so far. Um the f- sort of the the bilateral diplomacy when it comes to the Arctic has been relatively low key and in recent high level discussions between Icelandic ministers and Indian ministers Ar- the Arctic has come up but it has not been a main theme but um, expectations are that uh, that this collaboration will grow in in the coming years and there's certainly uh, now also with uh, india's arctic policy out there is certainly also scope for uh, for growth so just to make a few points here before i exceed my time um iceland has been supportive of Arctic collaboration with non-Arctic states, of course, including the Asian states, both at the bilateral and the uh, multilateral level. Stakeholders in Iceland, and here I talk both academia, the resource infrastructure, also uh, officials, ministries, and so far, have recognized that closer collaboration with Asian states um, can be very beneficial for Iceland, but also, of course, as is a, a great way of... of um, of dealing with Arctic challenges. But, um, but I also want to mention that the experience so far has also shown that when it comes to the project level, success cannot necessarily be taken for granted. The projects, they they need um, attention and, and support. And we see in, in some cases um, and spe- especially maybe in the case of, of China, that there have been some frictions and and some tensions have come up. So it is important that that um, so that we make the most of the opportunities that come our way. It is important at all levels that uh, that the projects that they get proper attention. Um, so I'm going to stop here, but I hope we have some questions later.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I think we should have time for questions and answers at the end. And now, uh, a great pleasure to invite Mark Lantain from UIT to give his remarks.
5: All right. goodness. Okay, thanks, everyone. Um, Big thank you to the conference organizers, the panel organizers. It is fantastic to be here. So what I want to do is just to give a very brief description of where China is fitting into some of the questions that we've already been speaking about. Now, it has been a longstanding question now for at least a decade over what exactly is China's strategy in the Arctic. And we've heard some very strong and uh, different opinions on the subject. And what I've been trying to do with my own research is to try to cut through it all and try to figure out patterns of China's engagement, including where science diplomacy fits in. Now, China is not an Arctic state. It is a country, though, that believes that it should be an Arctic stakeholder for a variety of reasons. So with those parameters in mind, China is trying to engage in a very delicate balancing act. On one hand, it does not want to appear revisionist. It does not want to appear that it is walking in, it is saying that the uh, laws and rules of the Arctic do not apply to me, here I am. That's simply not what China is capable of doing. On the other hand, though, it does not want to be seen as a passive actor because we've seen so many examples of the Arctic becoming an international concern that China simply does not want to be left out in the crowd. And many government members of China have said, look, we are not an Arctic state, but we are indeed a stakeholder, that we need to have a voice in emerging Arctic affairs within the parameters of international law. And obviously the discussion on that tends to vary a bit. So with those two extremes in mind, what has China been able to do? And the focus of my research has not really looked at the areas of laws and rules, because so far, China has been very careful not to step over those. What I'm interested in here is norms, which I'm told is a trapdoor under me. So if I get into an IR theory lecture, I'm down I go. But when I talk about norms very loosely, I'm talking about unwritten uh, kind of codes of behavior, expected patterns of behavior. And this is an area where things are very ambiguous. Now China is one of a baker's dozen of governments that are formal observers in the Arctic Council, and I'm sure that there are more to come depending on circumstances. But China is very distinct. It is in a position because of its size, obviously, to affect a great deal of Arctic discourse. So where do norms come in? Well, if you're a great power, usually you have the capability of creating a norm. Like even though this isn't written down, you should be doing X. On the other hand, small states, including in the Nordic region, and there's been a lot of good literature in Iceland, Norway on this subject, small states don't have the ability to make norms, but they can be norm entrepreneurs. They can say, hey, this is a good idea. You should do X because you get benefits if you do that. And if it is successful, this is referred to as norm diffusion. So norm entrepreneurship has been primarily studied in the area of small states. But my argument is that China is being a norm entrepreneur in the Arctic, that it does not want to be seen as a norm maker, but it wants to sell the idea of the Arctic as an international space, not challenging the laws, not challenging the regimes but making the argument that what is happening in the region is important enough that there should be international voices, including China itself. Now, as China has been doing this, it has been trying to uh, make a case that non-Arctic states should be involved in the region through scientific diplomacy. Whenever I speak to officials from China or academics from China, colleagues at Tongji or Qingdao, Very often I'm told right at the beginning that, first and foremost, China wants to understand the Arctic. And that was even put into the parameters of China's Arctic White Paper in 2018. We want to understand the region. And one kind of inconvenient truth for Beijing is that you can't buy experience. You actually have to go there with your notebooks, put in the time, put in the effort, and actually engage. And China is very dependent on the goodwill of Arctic states in order to accomplish that. Now, China's been conducting several very important uh, scientific uh, projects. It has two icebreakers with more on the way. It has uh, research stations, as was noted, in northern Iceland, as well as in Jalisund in Svalbard. China would like to increase that presence uh, depending on circumstances. But there's still been a question of how China is going to define how it's going to deal with these norms. And some of these endeavors have been a little bit more successful than others. Now, China is referring to itself as a near-Arctic state, Ji Guoja. Now, even some of my colleagues uh, back in Beijing have said we probably should not have used that term because it does imply a certain amount of geography that does not exist. So as soon as the criticism started to appear, and I should point out that contrary to conventional wisdom, this actually came from academia. This actually started to appear in uh, various academic papers, at least as far back as 2010, it only very, very, very slowly worked its way onto the official agenda. But once the criticism started to kick in, then you had Chinese officials and scientists saying, "Well, okay, it's not just about geography. We have a role to play scientifically. We have a great deal of resources, scientific, which we can bring to bear on the region to help everybody understand what is happening here." And as I Said in a presentation a few days ago back in Reykjavik, this is definitely a question of all hands on deck, especially if we're going to be talking about climate change here. We see evidence, we see reports, we see all kinds of different areas of proof that environmental security is becoming more and more urgent in the region. So that is how China's been trying to frame a lot of its engagement. Now, it is also, uh, China is also trying to portray itself very strongly as being a regional stakeholder that it has become very directly involved in any kind of new uh, governance endeavor, any kind of new compact, could be about civilian ship traffic, could be about fishing in the Central Arctic. China wants to be there. It really wants to be a joiner, to use the IR term. So here's a very weird case, the point I'm making, that you have a great power, one which usually tends to have a great deal of pull in international affairs, acting like a small state finding policies that are very compatible with small state capabilities, because China's own pathway is very much restricted. It simply can't be a revisionist power here. Now, what is going to happen under current circumstances? We have two very large problems now that China is facing. First of all, the status of the Arctic Council, which was obviously China's major conduit to understanding the region. Now, it was made quite apparent, including at the Arctic Council uh, Assembly in Reykjavik last October, that China would find it very difficult to engage Mm -hmm. uh, the Council without Russia. So this is a problem right there. This means that China may have to make better use of bilateral diplomacy, which is uh, useful, but obviously a little bit more complicated. It will definitely have to make greater use of Track 2 organizations, which has been a plan for China quite uh, for quite a long time. The second big question here is whether... The United States is going to allow this uh, process to continue because the US is now starting to act like a norm antipreneur. It is trying to say, I'm sorry, your norm is not acceptable here. And we've seen many examples of pushback from uh, the American government, both Trump and Biden on this subject. So to conclude, China is going to find itself uh, still on the path of using norms as its gateway to the Arctic, still making extensive use of science diplomacy. But I think that we're going to be seeing a much more conservative approach in the near future, and much is going to depend on the state of Arctic governance, which may be decided even in the next few months. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. And then the grande finale. Brennan Yenilinren, please Floor is yours. And we will have time for Q&A, so please
6: prepare. Well, thank you, Yuha, for that introduction, and again, thank you to Kristen for organizing this great panel. It's great to be here. Three years after the planned event of the Arctic Circle of Japan, and I think we have even more on the agenda to talk about, so I'm looking forward to the panels over the coming days. Um, My name is Renjeni Lingren. I am a senior research fellow at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, a think tank in Oslo, Norway. And today I would like to share with you some of, uh, very briefly, the findings of a study that I have done there on the Japanese take on security and sustainability in the Arctic context. Um, this is based on a, a larger publication. So for those of you, I know some in the audience have already asked for access to that publication. Uh, if you would like uh, to have that, please uh, feel free to come up afterwards. There's much more detail than I can provide today in my six minutes. (laughs) So I thought I'd just begin by something that I call Japan's Arctic Repertoire, basically the activities that Japan has been engaged in, especially since um, becoming an Arctic Council Observer State in 2013 at the Kiruna Ministerial. Um, We've seen real motivation uh, from the Japanese side. Of course, Japan has a longstanding research tradition in the Arctic, but the political will and the political leverage that has come into bringing the Arctic into the foreign policy space in Japan has been significant, I would say. Um, so these are a number of, of uh, important events that have happened since 2011. I think some of the most notable ones are, of course, the observer status in 2013. And what happened prior to this was also the announcement of a Japanese Arctic ambassador, a position that is, of course, very important for shepherding Arctic policy, Japan's interests in the Arctic, both at a national level, but also at an international level. And in 2015, Japan released its first Arctic policy. This was 95 years after Japan first got involved in Arctic affairs when it signed on to the Svalbard Treaty, uh, and 25 years since it established its research station in Svalbard. So a significant background um, in Japan. And we see now today, I think, the evidence or testament to the continuous motivation and ongoing political will is the fact that Japan has started building a uh, research uh, vessel an icebreaker uh, under JAMSTEC's auspices in 2021 and this will be a vessel that will um, have great um, opportunity I think for research environments in the Arctic and this is the first for Japan a research vessel that can actually travel all the way to the Arctic so um, this is exciting and there we are at the end the Arctic Circle Japan forum so looking forward to that Um, I think the long and short of it is, again, this is a very, very brief, uh, superficial version of, of the research that I've done, is that we can describe Japan's engagement and interest when it comes to security and sustainability as a nexus of international and national concerns, but also a nexus of non-traditional security concerns such as climate change and traditional concern, security concerns such as military buildup. Um, of course, for Japan, a, a nation that is uh, an island nation that is hardly you know, able to meet the resource demands of its energy, for instance, and other goods, it's highly dependable on sea lines of communication. And so the maritime aspect of Arctic security is something to Japan has emphasized the importance of having good international frameworks, the rule of law, UNCLOS, um, really the right infrastructure infrastructure and signing on to that infrastructure has been a point of focus when it comes to traditional security. We also know that, you know, we are in the middle of a constantly shifting geopolitical landscape. I think we hear a lot about the return to geopolitical politics, but I think geopolitics has actually always been here. We're just in a new phase now with different types of challenges, uh, in different global settings. And of course, there are ripple effects of these geopolitical developments for Japan, but also for the Arctic environment. And interestingly, Japan is one of the only Arctic uh policy writers, it's not an Arctic state, of course, but an Arctic policy writers that had a clause about national security within its Arctic policy, making it one of the seven priority areas. Um, and so, of course, this as- aspect of traditional security is important to Japan. However, I think it's clear in the statements made by both the Japanese government, but also um, the amount of resources that are put into the the research being done on Japan, that the main priority is understanding non-traditional security aspects, the effects of climate change in the Japanese environment, how we can... Um uh, work towards sustainable resource exploitation, and of course the environmental concerns that have spillover effect for the people, the fauna, the flora of the Arctic. Um, and we see that Japan has been at the forefront of providing important research contributions to both bilateral mechanisms but also multilateral activities, and has been a longstanding active member in the working council um, groups, uh, working groups of the Arctic Council prior even, of course, to, to its observer status in, in 2013 being granted. Um, so I think, you know, if we're trying to consider this idea of security and sustainability all the way from Tokyo to Niolusun in the Svalbard, um, national, non-traditional security focus is still the most prominent aspects of, of Japan's approach, but there are these interrelated traditional security issues, and perhaps because of the geopolitical landscape we have entered into now, those are being heightened, and Japan has been... a, a a country that has recognized these but at the same time we know that Japan finds itself in an environment with many geopolitical concerns a very intense uh, neighborhood of security uh, challenges ongoing historical territorial disputes uh, nuclear pro- proliferation uh, and so uh, it's perhaps not surprising to those of the, you in the room that the Arctic is not the priority priority point of Japan's foreign policy. It, of course, has gained political leverage and motivation, um, but it is not, uh, you know, at the top of the priority list. So, working on the issues that have great foreign policy synergy, and I think many of the issues that we will talk about in the coming. Days is very important for highlighting the role that Japan can play um, in working towards a more sustainable and secure Arctic. Uh, and when it comes to Arctic governance mechanism, I you know I think of course we we talk a lot about um, the Arctic Council the Council and the contributions Japan has made, but also. We know that there are um, uh, newer mechanisms that Japan has developed to the trilateral Forum, for instance, with China, Korea, and Japan that was established in 2015, last met in 2019, has not met since uh, the pandemic, a, b- a bit of a questionable future there. Perhaps we'll know more over the coming days, but it's important for really reaching out in different types of mechanisms, especially when we see the um, challenges that researchers at an individual level, but also a project-based Level really encounter now not having access to data from, for example, from you know colleagues in Russia, um, and not being able to really pull through on the projects to to do the type of research that they would like to do in them. But at the end of the day, I closing on a hopefully positive note, that it is a growing collaborative space in the Arctic and continues to be in these research stations like um, the research station in, in, in and, you know, They are of increasing importance, I think, for us in the coming years in understanding the people-to-people connections in research and the importance of that. And this is an area where states in Asia that otherwise have quite challenges trying to cooperate on issues um, of research related to security issues, can meet uh, and do kind of collaborative research. And we are seeing new spaces, resources, and participation. And with that, the icebreaker from Japan will hopefully be a new conduit. Thank you.
1: So it seems that we have some Uh, 14 minutes, so I would like to invite all the speakers in front. There's a wireless microphone over there, and there's another one here, but just in case we need it for quick questions. So, anybody in the audience who wants to be the first one? Okay, let's go here.
6: Thank you so much. My name is Kelsey Frazier. I am from Anchorage, Alaska with the Ted Stevens Center for Arctic Security Studies. My question is for Eileen. Um, recently, we have seen a new surge in salmon up on the North Slope. Um, the locals there don't typically fish for salmon, but they're starting to make adjustments in, in what they're catching and bringing in. And so I am wondering if, from your perspective, there needs to be any adjustment to the uh, fisheries agreement, or if something might need to change as we see some new uh, biomass move into the region. Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
3: is this live? Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> sorry. This is this is an evolving uh, uh, space, um, mainly because uh, Indigenous peoples have a say in what what uh, CALFA will do in the future, and also it's all, it's now an exploratory um, time for. Um, for, for, for uh, the agreement. And so there's a lot of research that's being done. There's a lot of on the ground um, uh, monitoring that's being done or planned to be done. That's much harder, of course, uh, with Russia um, sort of tentatively being in and being out. So I'm not exactly, from your part of the world, Is I'm not sure what the, the conversations have been amongst amongst the Inuit, for example, across the Strait, because there, are, obviously, there are there used to be much more communication with the Chi, Chi Peninsula, uh, for example. But yeah, that the, all of those, um, especially in fisheries quotas, all of those have to be determined as climate change impacts fisheries and and how they migrate from from now um, south to north, uh, and this is also happening. Uh, in, I guess you might know this because there's a there's a whole bunch of researchers at, uh, at the Arctic Research Center in Hokkaido who are looking at fish migrations from from uh, this, the the, the um, South Pacific all the way up to to the uh, um, Pacific Arctic, and so all of these things have to be looked at by by Kalfa. Um And I, I, as I've suggested, um, this is a time of monitoring that's going on now, and it's it's very very fledgling, and they're just now hammering out how this is. To be done, and uh, it'll be interesting to see in the future how, how uh, Russia um, uh, uh, and also the other states, of course, um, uh, participate in this. In this, and it's uh, it's re- really dovetail with what's going. On. I'm sorry, I'm going too long. Uh, dovetail was going on with the Arctic Council and all its working groups. So, yeah.
1: thank you, thank you. Uh, let's try to keep questions and answers as short as possible. Who will be the sorry. next one? While others are considering, I will use this opportunity to, to ask, this goes to all the panelists, please feel free to choose who is going to reply. Is there something special in the Arctic collaboration between the Asia and the Nordic countries? When compared to collaboration between, let's say, Asian countries and North American Arctic, or Asian countries and, and the, the Russia. So what is the peculiar features or characteristics between these Arctic collaboration between East Asia and and, and the Nordics. Well, I have heard Mark kind of giving a a presentation a a few days ago, so happy to hear if Mark has something to that. But if somebody else would like to to add here,
5: okay. Okay, thank you. Yeah, the Nordic region is uh, traditionally very important uh, when we talking about uh, Nordic-Arctic relations, because the Nordics were traditionally viewed as being more open to international, including Asian, participation in not only scientific endeavors, but economic development. Uh, Going back to what I said before, that many of the challenges in the Arctic require as many actors as possible. That said, though, we are starting to see, in the case of China, a little bit of pushback, especially in the case of Sweden and Denmark, more concerns about specifically China's motives in the region, whether there are hard strategies behind what is going on. And I think that might temper the enthusiasm of some Nordic governments about future Chinese engagement. Still a lot of questions here, though.
1: Thank you. Anybody in the audience with question or comment? Yes.
7: Thank you. My, my name is Taneli Vuorinen coming from company Senior from Finland. Uh, a question uh, to any or all of the panelists. Do you see or foresee any implication of the new technologies, uh, such as telecommunications, for instance, uh, the implications in the region of Arctic, the services, new services, applications which will become available, or, for instance, Arctic region to be used as a route uh, for submarine cable systems?
4: I think you should take this one. We have the right man. <laughs> we,
1: we, 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 we have spent more than enough time yesterday night, so is there anybody who wants... That's what you take, is your expertise. <laughs> yeah, but, but no, we have had more than enough opportunities. And, and, yeah. so, but is there anybody who wants we to... We would like to hear. Oh, okay. So, so again, I, I, there will be separate sessions focusing on, on, on uh, trans-Arctic cable projects. Obviously, when we talk about trans-Arctic cable projects, there's a question connectivity in the Arctic and connectivity through the Arctic. And uh, uh, we have had different types of projects, trans-Arctic cable projects and plans. I think when we there was plans to go through the Northeast Passage that was more about connectivity through the Arctic. Now, when we have a plan, oh, oh well, we, <laughs> they have a plan <laughs> to go through the Northwest Passage. I think the this element of impro- improving connectivity in the Arctic is more strongly incorporated there. Obviously, it then depends on on the on the terrestrial network builders and and how the how the Arctic states are gonna support. I, again we have a shared interest in 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 in, in uh, cable industry but then uh, there's also obviously questions concerning the satellite side and 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 different types of of uh, little, i guess we need a system of systems where we provide services uh to, to uh, uh, arctic communities through different types of telecom uh, telecom uh, services and then what is the role of of asian states playing these projects i think they have been actively involved for example, in these cable projects. I just received a five-minute warning and I saw that there's one hand up. So let's have one more question and we have to end in five minutes. So short question, short answer. Yes. My name is Aya.
0: I'm an MP from Greenland uh, at the Danish Parliament. And um, I have a question about business opportunities and investments from Asia in in the Arctic. Um, What kind of Opportunities do you see, but also what kind of pitfalls do you see as well because you know, as Mark was saying, there's a resentment from some of the Nordic countries when it comes to Asian investments in in the Nordic
2: Arctic. Thank you
1: wants next this one
2: yeah uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is important uh whoever you're engaging with, uh, and when we're talking about Asian states, if it's uh, China or Korea or or Japan, um, that you cooperate uh, on a political level uh, with your friends. And uh, we have good friends in the Kingdom of Denmark uh, that also have other resources that that we have alone to assess potential risk, potential uh, barriers, uh, and have experience... uh, in, in cooperating with, uh, with, uh, with Asia. Uh, and I think as long as you have a political uh, alignment or political agreement, that uh, uh, some areas uh, are, are good to do cooperation with, uh, I think you are on, on safe ground uh, on that. And also in connection to, to the other question that was before with the, with the submarine cable from Japan and Finland, uh, via uh, Alaska and, and and the Pacific and, and, and northern Canada and to Greenland. I strongly encourage the the partners also to uh, uh, cooperate with the government of Greenland because if you see on the potential drawings for where the submarine cables should be, like it goes up to northern uh, parts of uh, Canada and uh, it goes directly into the Thule Air Base and then basically doesn't go into the rest of the Greenland and then it goes to Canada and to Iqaluit. And we are all talking about connectivity and uh, could also be a a, a area of cooperation uh, which can do good so we are not uh, being so isolated as we are and at least we get some more opportunities uh, to choose from uh, uh, in that sense. I don't know if there's other.
1: Thank you. We still have two more minutes. Anybody else who want to give a comment on this one.
4: Can Please. I make a
1: question to Jakob? Yes. <laughs> but it has to be really short.
4: <laughs> yes, very short. Um, I find it so interesting that Greenland has now opened, uh, and that you're head of office in, in Beijing. I'm very interested in hearing, Is there? do you feel there is a good match between the Greenlandic agenda coming to China and, and what you hear from the Chinese side, what they are interested in doing or discussing with Greenland?
2: Absolutely, there's a a, a wonderful match. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have opened the, the the representation in Beijing and put the political priority in in Beijing. Uh, and at the same time, we also cover uh, Japan and, and and Korea, and we have a huge fishery export to especially China. And it's important that we stay in directly contact with the Chinese authorities to uh, to keep this export and to expand it and and consolidate it uh, even more, and also to the other uh countries, but I also see a match in in, in in more cultural exchange to to have a better direct connection between uh, Asian states between china between greenlanders uh to exchange on uh, education on culture on uh, uh, tourism and uh, and so forth so so I think it's a excellent match that we have i have to say. <laughs>
1: Okay, if there's somebody who wants to say something, it can take approximately 30 seconds. (laughs) And there we have one. 30 seconds. And
7: we need a mic. Maybe just uh, a short comment on the Arctic uh, Council. I'm a senior Arctic official of Iceland, and uh, I just wanted to say that uh, I don't really agree with... uh, saying that uh, Russia has been shut out of the Arctic Council. Uh, On the contrary, it was the like-minded Arctic states that withdrew from uh, cooperation with Russia in the statement of the 3rd of March. Uh, Russia is still very much active, it's still a full member, and as far as I know, uh, the like-minded states want to keep Russia a member of the Arctic Council into the future once that becomes possible. And finally, we we feel that uh, we are are very confident that uh, Norway will take over the chairmanship on the 11th of May. Mm -hmm. We don't see anything to suggest otherwise. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, no time to react on this last comment, but the discussion continues in other sessions. Finally, a big hand for our panelists. Thank you for joining us.